It is great to see you all here today. Long time no see. You know, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago I was here. Last time I was here, uh, as you all know, for Joy's wedding, and uh, I got the opportunity to fill in for Pastor Craig so that he could have the weekend off, so to speak, and just enjoy his daughter's wedding. Uh, and this week, my wife and I, my family are in town for vacation. So it just really happened to work out that we were in town at the same time Pastor Craig was out of town in India, and I get the opportunity and the privilege to be here once again to fill in for him, to be back in my hometown, in my home church, to bring God's word. And so I am excited and grateful for that opportunity, and I'm going to tell you all something again, the same thing I told you last time. I preach better when you talk back. Okay, so I want to hear some feedback. I want to hear some amens. You know, even when you look at the, the creation, the cadence of creation was marked by a rhythm and a pattern of, of call and response. God would say, let it be, and it was. Let it be, and it was. And so anytime when you're listening to a message and you hear God's word go forth, there's something lands on your heart that, that resonates with you or that you agree with, amen means let it be so. So if you want to see whatever it is you're hearing, that, that truth to come forth in your life, say amen, all right? And you might get a little excited. And if, that, if that's you, that's okay, because I'll preach better if you get excited, okay? All right, so can I get some amens? You're all with me this morning? Awesome, awesome. Well, as I said, I'm in town for vacation, and let me tell you, I am glad to be on vacation, it has been a crazy year. My wife and my schedule has just been nuts. And I know that a lot of people here can relate with that feeling of just, I need a break. I just need to take a step back, collect myself, regather my thoughts. And uh, But how many of you know that just preparing for vacation can sometimes be frustrating in and of itself? You know you need the break, but getting ready to take the break adds more stress and frustration onto what you're already experiencing. Sometimes you've got to work extra hours just to get ready to be gone. And then when you get back from vacation, you got to work extra hours to get caught up from being gone from vacation. But getting ready for vacation this week has been another example to me of the frustration that comes just trying to make sure you've remembered everything and getting the laundry done and, you know, trying to figure out what when we're going to leave. And, and, and this week, I experienced some more frustration of, I don't know why, because I've never really been one. Some of you may have seen this. I, I posted this on social media last week, Thursday. And for the sake of those of you that may not have seen that post, I'm going to share uh, this story of some of my own frustration, which led to some embarrassment on my part uh, with you as we were getting ready for vacation. But I've never really been one to work on my own vehicle. I'm not a mechanic. I don't know much about cars. I've, my dad never really taught me that, and uh, I never developed a desire to work on my own vehicles. Uh, I figured, you know what, let the professionals take care of that. You know, I've helped out a little bit here and there of, as friends of mine have worked on my car, but for whatever reason, all right, this week on Thursday, I decided that before we hit the road, I was going to change a rotor, one of the brakes on my van, all right? Great idea, right? Wrong. Wrong. See, because what happened was, um, uh, we all week we're trying to decide, are we going to leave Thursday or we're going to leave Friday? Are we going to leave Thursday? On Thursday, we decide we're going to leave Thursday. And so I, I figured, you know what, I'm just going to get out of work an hour or two early. I'm going to stop by the auto store, pick up a rotor, and get home, get it changed. I've heard it's like a 15-minute job. Should be no problem, right? Yeah, right, I wish. 
So I, I go to the store, I get the rotor, I get home, park in the driveway, I get the car jacked up, I put the emergency brake on, you know, I get the tire taken off, and I'm looking at this thing, okay, what, what bolts or screws do I need to take off to remove the brake assembly from the rotor so I can take the rotor off? But I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking to myself, you know what, the brake pads look like they're really squeezing the rotor, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it off. And so I think to myself, maybe I've got to take the emergency brake off to remove the brake assembly. And uh, if you know anything about cars, you know that that's not what you're supposed to do. And so I go in the van and I take the emergency brake off while it's jacked up and the tire's off. And as soon as I do that, the vehicle starts to roll and boom, it just falls. The, the jack just comes out from underneath it and it's sitting on its brake, on the brakes. It's like on the ground. And I said, oh, shoot. No, of course not. I didn't say that. I'm a pastor. I said much worse than that. Okay, don't judge me because you would have said the same thing. My flesh came out in a big way, big time. And uh, I got frustrated because instantly I thought, oh, man, I just screwed my car up. I don't know if I broke the axle. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, we're not going to be able to leave for Buffalo tonight. And uh, fortunately, I walked across the street and my neighbor, who I've seen work on his vehicle many times in his driveway, I asked him for a jack and he goes, what are you doing over there? I'm like, well, I think I just broke my car trying to replace a rotor. Uh, it's sitting on the ground right now because I took the emergency brake off and, and the jack came out. And so he came over and came to the rescue, helped me kind of uh, get the thing situated. Fortunately, nothing else was broke or was damaged and I got my rotor replaced and we still got on the road by seven o'clock. We were here by midnight on Thursday, but uh, I successfully learned how not to change a rotor, all right? Uh, so if you learn anything from it, I guess it's not a total failure. Um, but I got frustrated, all right? And I get frustrated with things like that, frustrated with leaving for vacation. But sometimes, you know, I also get frustrated emotionally, spiritually. The last couple of years of my life, you know, have been a season for, our, for Kelly and I as we moved into Columbus almost three years ago now of, uh, I don't know even how to say it, I mean, Emotionally and relationally, it's been a season of loneliness and discouragement and constantly questioning uh, God's call. And, you know, we, we had family and friends here and, you know, those relationships take time to develop. And then you move to an area where you don't know anybody and, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm really alone. And that, that frustration spilled over into my, my spiritual life. And, and I started to get frustrated as I looked at my life and, and the promises I see in here, I don't see in my own life. I've been frustrated because the, the, the faith that this word says I'm supposed to have, I don't have the, the faith. I can't seem to muster it to experience the abundant life that, that Christ said he came to give us. I'm frustrated because I don't experience the abundant joy this word says is available to me in Christ. And if I were to guess, I'd probably feel pretty confident in saying that I'm probably not the only person here today that has felt that way at one point or another in their own walk with Christ. Just frustration. The gap between, you know, the, the faith that I'm, I'm supposed to have and the faith, or lack thereof, should I say, that I feel like I actually have. 
frustration. And so I'm sure many of you can relate with it. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's not people here today that if they were to be honest with themselves, would just say, you know what? Or at this point in their lives where they, where they look and they say, you know what? Nothing I do ever changes anything. My, my life sucks. I, I might as well just give up. Maybe there's somebody even here today who's just ready to, to end it all. And even if you're not at that point this morning, I think it probably is safe to say that every single one of us here at one time or another can relate with that, that struggle of the frustration of the disparity between what we see in here and what we're experiencing. And man, how many of you can relate with that struggle? About half of you. The rest of you are asleep or lying. I want to start by asking a question today. It's a rhetorical question, but I want you to think about this as we kind of get into the message. I want to start by saying this. Does your faith produce the results that you want in life? Does your faith produce the kind of results that you want to see in your life? It's a question I've been asking myself a lot lately. Is my faith producing the kind of life that I want to experience? And if you're anything like me, chances are it's not even close. But today, I want to challenge us all to believe that I don't, I don't think it has to stay that way, and I don't think that that should be the norm in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to challenge us today to believe that, that the audacious faith we see in the Bible, the faith that would cause a man to ask God to make the sun stand still in the sky, is the same faith that's available to you and to me today, the faith that we can claim for our own lives. So my prayer today is that this wouldn't just be another message that you hear and then forget about within a few hours of hearing and, and it really having no impact or changing your life. I'm praying that today is a wake-up call to a lot of us to, to lay hold of the kind of faith that, that Jesus wants to have, the life that he died for us to have, the abundant life that he wants us to experience. My prayer today is that you would leave today with your foot firmly planted on the neck of whatever enemy is robbing you of the life that you desire, the life that I believe God has called, created, and saved you for. So that is actually the title of my message today. It's called Put Your Foot on It. It's the only point in my message because I want you to walk away with the understanding that you are to put your foot on the neck of your enemy. So turn to three people and touch them and say, put your foot on it. Put your foot on it. If the story that I am going to share with you this morning were to be turned into the next Bible-inspired movie that Hollywood would put out, it would definitely be one that we would not allow our children to go watch. And chances are it would probably even be one that many adults would choose to forego seeing, especially if it stayed true to the biblical account, because there would be more violence in it than even the most raw action film to date, horror film. But at the same time, it would offer more hope than even the warmest feel-good movie ever could. The story that I want to share, to do, share with you today is the one in Joshua, where it talks about him and the Israelites taking the promised land. And specifically, I want to look at the events of Joshua chapter 10. 
So if you have your Bibles with you today, I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 10. But if you don't have your Bibles, we're going to have the words up on the screen for you, so that is okay. Now, to set the stage for everyone so that we're all on the same page and have an understanding of, of where we're at in the history of, of the nation of Israel, because really the entire Old Testament follows the nation of Israel, which is God's chosen people through whom he wanted to reveal himself to the world. And so many of you are familiar with the fact that the Israelites for 400 years were held captive as slaves in Egypt. And then God calls a man named Moses from a burning bush to go and rescue the Israelites, to lead them out of captivity. You're familiar with the story of, of Moses leading them across the Red Sea as God does this incredible miracle and parts the waters of the Red Sea. Some of you that are a little bit older may be familiar with the movie from you know, a couple of decades ago with Charlton Heston, The Ten Commandments. It was recently redone in the movie Exodus. Um, phenomenal movie. But so they lead him across, you know, the Red Sea. And then for 40 years, the Israelites kind of wander through the desert in a series of divine detours as God kind of has to deprogram them from their old way of thinking as slaves and develop them into the kind of people that they're going to need to be to invade and take over an occupied territory, a, a land called the promised land that God had promised to give their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so many generations earlier. But at the end of that 40 years, Moses then dies, and God appoints a man named Joshua to be his successor. And in the first couple of chapters of Joshua, you see that he is a courageous and valiant leader. I mean, he, he is, it's, it's story after story of conquest. I mean, he's kicking butt, he's taking names, he's leveling cities, and he is proving to be a man that is devoted to God's word and, and somebody who is leading courageously. But then in the 10th chapter of Joshua, we're introduced to five Amorite kings. Now, the Amorites were enemies of Israel. And we see, if you read in the chapters leading up to this, that the Amorites are, these five Amorite kings kind of gather together. They gang up on uh, Gibeon. Now, Gibeon was one of Israel's allies. And you can read about Gibeon if you want in Joshua chapter 9. But they're ganging up, and they surround Gibeon. And Gibeon sends word to Joshua. He says, we're surrounded. Please come help. We're allies. We've struck a deal. And so Joshua goes to the Lord, and, and, and God says to Joshua, don't worry about this. I got your back. I'm with you. These enemies will be toast. And so when you read the story, you see that Joshua gathers his best fighting men, it tells us, and they set out on an all-night march. They literally march straight through the night to launch a surprise attack on the Amorites. And when they do, panic sets in in the Amorite camp, and the Israelites start to win. They start, you know, the Amorites start fleeing, and it tells us that after a sword scuffle and a chase, God even sends hailstones, huge hailstones, down on the fleeing Amorite army, so much so that it says more of the Amorites died from hailstones than from the swords of the Israelites. But they're fleeing, and, and they're running out of daylight, though, and Joshua is faced with this dilemma. And so I want to pick up the story in verse 12 of chapter 10, as they're running out of daylight. It says in verse 12, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. 
as it is written in the book of Jasher. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. You know, next to Jesus coming back from the dead, which you can't really beat that miracle, I think this miracle might be one of my favorite in all of Scripture. I mean, asking the sun to stand still, I don't know about you, but that wouldn't even enter my thinking as something that I could possibly ask God for. It is outside of the realm of possibility. But this is some pretty audacious faith that Joshua has here to ask God to make the sun stand still. And listen, I want to pause at this point of the story just to kind of say a couple of things. And there's a whole sermon series literally wrapped up in that one short but simple prayer request. And I don't have time to unpack all of it, but I want to just say a couple of things. And the first is this. I believe that the faith that Joshua had to ask God to make the sun stand still in the sky is the same faith that's available to you and me today that we can claim for our own lives. See, Joshua's fighting this battle and the sun starts to set in the sky and he, he sees that he's running out of daylight and, and if he lets his enemies escape under the cloak of darkness, he knows that they might regroup and regather and they might come and hunt him down as he continues his conquest of Canaan. And he also knows that God hasn't called him to a partial victory, but to a complete and total victory. And I would say the same thing to you today. God hasn't called you to partial victory. He's called you to complete victory. So if you're here today, just kind of barely getting by, stuck in spiritual survival mode, just going through the motions, hoping you'll get into heaven, but living like hell while you're here on earth, struggling with depression and battling addiction, hoping that you just kind of win. That's not what God has for us. God wants to win decisive victories in your life. So Joshua throws this Hail Mary pass kind of a prayer, thinking, you know what? If God created the sun, then certainly he can tell it to stop. He can hit pause on time so that I can finish this battle and, and finish what he's had me start. And God honors his faith and does exactly that. And the Israelites win a decisive victory. So what I want to say to you in this part of the story is that you know, this sun stands still prayer is symbolic of all of the impossible situations that you might be facing in your life today. So what is that seemingly impossible situation that you're facing today? Is there a relationship that needs to be restored that, that you think maybe has just too far gone, the damage is done, and, and you don't know that you or the other person will be able to forgive what has been said and done? He can make the sun stand still. Is it your kids? Is it your calling? Is it your business or your bank account? Is it, you know, is it a sin struggle that you just can't seem to get victory over? Is it a prayer request that's so personal and so private that you've not uttered a word of it to anyone because you're afraid that if you do, they'll laugh at you because of how audacious and out there it is? Is it a generational curse that you just feel doomed to be the next in line with. Maybe it's been plaguing your family for generations and you think 
There's nothing you can do to stop it. He can make the sun stand still. This is the realm where audacious faith needs to kick in because anything is possible with God. Whatever we would think or deem as impossible isn't even remotely difficult for our God. There's no such thing as a sun that he can't stop. He who created the sun can tell it where to go. And whatever is impossible or would seem to be impossible in your life, he can make the sun stand still. We need to realize, though, that asking and acting go hand in hand. We got to get this. Asking and acting go hand in hand. See, God may have sent hailstones and caused the sun to stand still, but Joshua and the Israelites still had to march through the night, and they still had to pursue and fight their enemy. So if you're going to have the audacity to ask, you better be willing to march through the night and fight the enemy that's in front of you. Have the audacity to ask, but you have to have the persistence to pursue. Asking and acting go hand in hand. See, because faith, it's not intended to be a drug to sedate you through a life that you can't stand. So many Christians, I know way too many Christians kind of walk through this life with the constant chronic state of, of just discouragement and despair. With the ache of the ordinary. And so we hold our faith like a snuggie. And we swallow it like an Ambien just to cope so we can get some sleep and make it through the day. Sun stands still faith. Doesn't do that. Sun stands still faith changes our perspective and it calls us to action. So I wanted to pause, like I said, at this point in the story to help us understand that sun stands still faith is available to us today, and it's what is needed to get us where we're going so that we can put our foot on the necks of whatever enemy is robbing us of the life that we all desire, the life that God wants to give us, that he died for us to have. Far too many Christians I know aren't living what even they would call an abundant life. And yet, Jesus said, I have come that you would have life and have it to the full. So I want to look I want to spend the rest of our time here this morning kind of looking at the last half of this story and the last half of the chapter, because remember I said there were five Amorite kings. I want to look at what happened to those kings. So if we pick up the story in verse 16, it says this. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makeda. And when Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, Roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. If we skip to verse 22, after returning safely, Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings 
So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. See, once the five kings' armies had been defeated, Joshua returns to the cave that they had been found hiding in and that he trapped them in. And he wants to make a spectacle of them. He wants to make an unforgettable point. And so he gathers together all the men of Israel. And to this day, when we read the story, he gathers us together as well. Picture, if you will, the, the soldiers all standing there shoulder to shoulder. And, and we are standing there with them as part of the audience. Place yourself in the scene because Joshua wants to show us all something. And calling the military chiefs out from the crowd to face these Amorite kings, presumably bound and lying on the ground, he says to them, put your feet on their necks. And then he declares, says, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. See, the next couple of verses, if you were to read on, tell us that Joshua then gets the order to have these five kings executed. And he strings their bodies up on poles so that everyone that sees will know what happens to the enemies of their God. And then at sunset, it tells us he takes their bodies down and throws them back into the cave that they had been found hiding in, puts a stone over it so that they're never seen from or heard from again. Now listen, while I know that this may sound a little bit grotesque, murder, execution, stringing dead bodies up on poles for all to see, I told you that the movie would be rated R. But what I want you all to see is that all of our enemies, the enemies of our faith, the enemies that are robbing you of joy and the life that you want, will all ultimately be defeated. Even in the darkest day, even in the darkest moment, when you feel like there is no hope, that there is no victory to be had, when you feel like evil is winning, it can't prevail. You know why? Because roughly 2,600 years prior to this event happening, long before Joshua would tell his commanders to place their feet on the necks of their foe, God promised us one who would place his foot on the neck of our greatest foe. I'm referring to the story in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned against God, they disobeyed God and partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And before he kicked them out of the garden of, of Eden, he said this to the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, you can look it up. He says, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. And he will, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, what does that story have to do with Joshua and these Amorite kings? Well, what I want you to see, this is where Joshua 10 is pointing. And this is what I want all of you to understand this morning. See, long before this happened with Joshua, this prophecy that God gave in the very beginning of time was a prophecy that would be fulfilled and realized in Jesus Christ, whose heel would be bruised when he was nailed to that tree on Calvary. But in the very act of doing so, he would once and for all forever crush the head of our enemy, our greatest foe, Satan himself. 
See, Jesus wouldn't defeat his enemies by the strength of the sword. He would do it by suffering on a cross. He didn't place his enemies in a cave. He allowed himself to be placed in a cave covered up by a, by a stone, but not for long, right? Three days later, he emerged from that tomb, holding the keys of death, hell, and the grave once and for all, securing our victory over the grave. Do you see it? This is good news. And when he came out of that grave, he too made a public spectacle of our enemy. Joshua did it with the Amorite kings, and Jesus did it to Satan when he emerged victorious from that grave. This is what the Apostle Paul said to the Colossians in his letter to them. In Colossians 2.15, I wanted to show you this verse. Speaking of Jesus, he says this, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, what I want you to see is that many of you know that the New Testament was written in Greek. And when we read it in the English language, a lot of times, the English language can be a little bit flat and we lose the full impact and, and meaning and significance of what the original writer wanted the original audience to understand and see. And so when you look at the, the meaning of the Greek words that Paul used as he penned these words, you get a much, much more powerful uh, visual depiction of what, what Jesus actually accomplished for us on the cross. When he says he made a public spectacle of them, this was actually a military term that they would have been familiar with. See, because in that day and in that culture, when, when nations and kings would go to war, the conquering victorious king would return from battle by having a triumphal parade march straight through the center of his town or his city. And in the processional of this parade, he would march behind him the defeated foe bound and shackled, now powerless, together with all of his military commanders also bound and chained in shackles. And behind them in this processional, as he's trying to make a public show of them, would be ox carts loaded to overflowing of all of the spoils of war, things that had once belonged to the enemy that now belonged to the victorious king. Are you seeing the parallel? So picture with me, if you will, what Paul is saying is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and emerged from that tomb, he was making a public spectacle of our enemy, that our foe has been defeated. He is now powerless. So picture with me, sin and greed and lust and pornography and addiction and all of those things that the enemy tries to use to hold you down, to hold you bound, to hold you with no victory in your life. They're defeated. They have no power over you. Jesus made a public spectacle of them. So what was to Joshua and the Israelites, the Lord will fight for you. To us today has become the Lord has fought for you. And because of this truth, we hear Joshua's words to us as an invitation. See, because of Jesus, we can view this scene here in Joshua 10 symbolically and apply Joshua's words of hope to our own struggles today. So what do these five kings represent? These five kings can represent financial problems. If you're struggling financially or if you have marital problems, maybe your marriage is on the brink of divorce and you're feeling like there's just, there's no hope. 
can rep represent emotional struggles. It can represent debt or sickness. It can represent addictions to, to alcohol or nicotine or pornography or, or lying or gambling. What does that, those five kings represent to you? See, Joshua invites us to take our own feet and place them on the neck of the enemy. And so that sin that, that's always trying to trap you, put your foot on it. That lie that tries to get you to buy sin's empty promises, put your foot on it. You know, that, that lie, that, that depression that tries to rob you of your joy, it's time to put your foot on it. Romans 16, 20 tells us that one day the God of peace will crush Satan himself under our feet. So we might as well start practicing now and put our foot on him where he belongs. This isn't wishful thinking. This victory is real. It says that sin shall not have dominion over us. Greater is he who's in us than he who is in the world. I'm tired of seeing Christians live beneath their calling as sons and daughters of the Most High God. More than conquerors were called to be, and yet we still struggle to, to get victory over these areas in our life or to have the joy that, that he wants to give us. Because Jesus defeated Satan when he rose from the dead. When we look in the mirror, we need to see ourselves as one who already has the victory. We fight from a place of victory. We don't fight for victory. The victory was accomplished 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, it is finished. You are not the victim. You are the victor. So turn to your neighbor and say, I am victorious. So listen, I know that this sounds great and all, and it can be easy sometimes for uh, for preachers to kind of give, try to give spiritual answers to, to very real life problems. And your situation may not change overnight just because you're going to walk out of here and put your foot on the neck of your enemy. But what does this mean for you tomorrow when you got to, when you have to go back to a job that you hate? I'll tell you what not to do. Don't put your foot on the neck of your boss. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. Don't, don't, don't misinterpret here. But what do we do when, you know, our situations don't change? Sometimes we just have to stand on, on, on God's word and the truths and the promises in there and refuse to buy the lie of the enemy. So what do you do? How do you put your foot on the neck of your problem if you're in the middle of a divorce right now? Maybe you need to just refuse to give in to that lie of the enemy that's saying, you're worthless or you're unloved or, or there's something wrong with you and stand on God's word that, that says your heavenly father has loved you with an everlasting love and his plans for you are, are still to give you a hope and a future and those plans are not forfeit. Stand on God's word. How do you put your foot on the neck of your problem if you're drowning in debt? Well, first of all, as a follower of Jesus Christ in whom the Spirit of God dwells, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So you've got to start walking in self-control and stop spending money you don't have. Because most of the financial problems and troubles we face today are our own doing. We live above our means. We keep up with the Joneses. We don't manage and steward the finances of God's kingdom 
God's ways. And then we want God to rescue us. But then you've got to start taking some steps to get yourself out of the pit you put yourself in. Asking and acting go hand in hand. Have the audacity to ask, but have the persistence to pursue the enemy and the problem that you're facing. There is a way out. Join a Financial Peace University group or class. But start taking some steps to overcome that problem, that debt. There were friends of mine back at my old church who I was recently talking to who, because of Financial Peace University in the last, uh, I think it was 23 or 28 months, he and his wife together paid off $118,000 of debt in just over two and a half years, two years. And here's the kicker. They did it all while tithing. So for those of you that say you can't afford to tithe, I say you can't afford not to. Because if you want to experience God's blessings in your finances, blessings follow obedience. And you've got to trust God with your first fruits and honor him. How do you put your foot on the neck of your problem if you're struggling with loneliness and depression? Well, for me personally, I've been declaring Nehemiah 8.10 over my life, which says the joy of the Lord is my strength. Notice it doesn't say my joy. It says the joy of the Lord. Jesus lives in me. It's his joy that lives in me that gives me the strength to face another day when I'm discouraged or when I'm lonely or when I feel like depression is trying to hold me down. But you also got to realize that you weren't created to do life alone. If the extent of your spiritual walk is coming here on Sunday morning and hearing a 40-minute message and then going home and you, you never have any other experience with other believers, other people that can surround you and support you and, and pray for you and, and hold you accountable, then your spiritual walk is going to be a shallow one. Life is better connected. As the body of Christ, we were created to need one another. So if you're not in a small group, you need to join one. If there's not one to join, start one. Invite your friends and say, you know what? I think we need to join together, get together, and, and, and just do life together. We need relationships. How do you put your foot on the neck of your enemy if you're trapped in a, in a bondage and addiction to pornography? I don't have to even ask because the statistics are astounding. Almost nine out of 10 men deal with this issue to some degree or another. And even the statistics of women that are getting caught up in pornography would blow your mind. Take it from somebody who struggled with an addiction to pornography for 20 years, that you've got to get militant with this thing. You don't have the strength in and of yourself to fight it by yourself. It's too strong. So you got to get some accountability in your life. you got to make a covenant like Job did. Make a covenant with your eyes that you will not look lustfully upon another woman. I'm not talking empty promises. You've made those plenty, plenty of times before. I know you have because I did it plenty of times too. If you didn't say it hundreds of times, it was thousands of times. God, I'm so sorry. That's the last time I'm ever going to look at that. I want to live for you. I want to honor you. I want to be a man of integrity and purity. And then the very next time, three days later, that temptation presents itself, your resolve to honor God just melts. And there you find yourself in front of the computer screen, exchanging the life that God wants to give you for an artificial and cheap substitute that satisfies for a fraction of a second. And then it's followed by guilt and shame and condemnation. 
You gotta get accountability in your life. See, I surrounded myself with other guys for the period of about two and a half years when I finally made the decision that I was gonna put my foot on the neck of this thing and that I wasn't gonna let it control me or have victory in my life anymore. And every week for almost two and a half years, the guys that would get together would, would get up in each other's business and ask each other some real tough, personal, raw questions. And we all promised that we would be honest with one another. And if you're sitting here today thinking, you know what, what is the point? I've always struggled with this. I'm, I'm never going to gain victory over it. Can I tell you that somebody who has been walking in victory for nearly seven years that you can, by the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, you can have victory in this area of your life. There's no sun that he can't stop in its tracks. You've got to have the audacity to ask him, though, and the persistence, the determination to pursue and to fight. Put your foot on it. Put your foot on it. See, in closing, knowing Jesus and knowing his word is your key to victory. Jesus said in John 8, 32, he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So many people like to quote that verse, but they actually misquote it so many times when they say, and the truth will set you free. It's actually the knowledge of the truth that brings freedom. Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth and the life. So getting this word into you is what it's going to take to know him, to know the truth, to experience that victory. So my challenge to you, my, the homework assignment, if you want to say it that way, that I want to give you today, this week, is to get into this word and find one verse. Find your life verse, something that speaks to you, that maybe it's a promise of God. Maybe it's something about your calling. Maybe it's whatever it is. Find something that you can hold on to and write it down on a three-by-five card. Laminate it. Put it in your purse, your wallet. Write it on your bathroom mirror. Quote that thing out loud to yourself every morning when you get up so you can hear yourself recite God's word and his promises to you. And I promise you that when you get into this word, when you get this word into you, you will start to see more victory than defeat in your life. You will start to see that kind of audacious faith rise up and you'll start to believe that God can do the impossible, that the stories we read about in here aren't just fairy tales. They're meant to be lived out and walked out by a church who serves a risen and living God. Amen? Say, so put your foot on it. Church, thank you so much for the opportunity to let me share with you.